Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians. Our focus will be on the first two verses in this introduction to this new exposition of this wonderful epistle of Paul to the Colossians. Uh, we will look at uh, at least two other texts in the book of Acts. One of them, a major text there that we'd like to look at this morning as we begin a new series. And you know, I've had the occasion over the last really almost 10 to 12 months to read a lot of resumes of ministers as we're looking for a youth director. And I would look over all sorts of resumes and all different kinds of designations. And I realized really how creative so many people are and how you don't have a very creative pastor, I have to say. When I looked at it and I thought to myself, this is amazing, all these things they're being trained to do now in seminary. In fact, it's usually somewhere down the middle of the list before you find anything about what a minister is actually called to do. What's a minister called to do? Preach, pray, equip you. Very little of that seems to show up in a lot of our resumes today. And I would submit to you that as complex as it may seem in the church today, it's not more complex than it was at Colossae. In fact, when you see what the culture is like in Colossae, you'd say it's very similar. In some ways, it's maybe more complex. But there's always, always, always one answer the apostles have for this complexity. Whether they're writing to the Corinthians or the Thessalonians or the Philippians or the Romans, one answer is always the answer. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. That's constantly and consistently it. That's the extent of my creativity, brothers and sisters. I hope it manifests itself in many ways, but if at the end of the day, Christ isn't who you see, we are totally missing our calling as a church. The supremacy of Christ. Not ourself, not our needs, not our programs, not our things, not our stuff. The supremacy of Christ over all those things. And how do we see those things in light of the supremacy of Christ? That's the answer. And Colossians is all about that. It speaks directly to us in our complex day. This simple message still is resounding to us. The supremacy of Christ over all things. Let's begin studying this wonderful book together by reading the first two verses. Hear God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful book that you have preserved, that you have inspired, writing it through the hand of the Apostle Paul. Lord, I pray that we would see today its direct relevance, its direct application to us as we live our lives, Lord. We so badly need the simplicity of this message that Jesus is to be supreme over everything. Lord, with all our busyness, with all our activities, with all the complexities, our relationships, the things, the stuff, and so on, Help us to pause and ask ourselves a simple question this morning. How is it that Christ is supreme over my life, over our church? We want that for this culture, Lord. We know it's what this culture needs. I pray that we would start right here in our individual lives and hearts and families and church. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Often overlooked in the scriptures are the various salutations and greetings. I think a great study that I have done over, over time, and I bid you to do as well, and it's very easy to do anymore, especially with computer software that has the Bible there for you. Just go to all the beginnings 
of Paul's epistles and cut out the first couple lines and put them on one sheet and just see the power of the pastoral sentiment that is there as he prays for, essentially, or pronounces blessing upon those who are about to read it. He says some tough stuff in a lot of these epistles. He still starts, though, with reminding them first of his apostolic authority, not so much to puff himself up, but to say, this is from God. I'm a prophet. So the words I speak are God's words. He says this in the beginning of almost all of his epistles. But he also says something else. He gives some inclination in every one of his epistles to our position in Christ as children of God. The fact that we can experience something that no one else in the world can. Yes, some of what I'm going to say is going to be difficult, the apostle says. But at the same time, grace to you and peace because you can have it. You can have it as believers. In his opening salute to the people of God in these first two verses, the Apostle Paul, really, he touches upon a profound reality that is only true of those who belong to Christ, the experience of grace and peace. Grace and peace is unknown in a true sense to anyone outside of Christ. It's a different definition, it's a different subject, a different object, and it's not real peace. So he speaks something that is very, very pointed to people who can know. These two verses, we could be quick to pass over and get right to the meat of this great epistle. But let's not do that. There's too much here. Too much here. First, look at the very first verse. We're introduced to the Apostle Paul and Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, notice what he says, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. First, the Apostle Paul. He's asserting that he is an apostle by the will of God. In other words, he didn't just, as some in our day, make himself an apostle or claim himself to be an apostle. It was by the will of God that he became an apostle. An apostle is the counterpart to the prophet in the Old Testament. Particularly chosen by God, ordained with a message, commissioned to go forth as a representative, an official representative of the king. Messenger is a literal word for apostolos. That's what we mean, a messenger of the king. That's who Paul is, and not because he says so, but by the will of God. He's commissioned by the living Christ. In fact, how do we know who an apostle is? Only those people who were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ and commissioned by him and then affirmed by the apostolic community, which has only ever been 13 people. It's all there ever has been. 11 of the original disciples. Matthias was added as 12 after Judas, Judas died, killed himself. And then Paul specially appointed. 13 apostles. That's all we've ever had. There are no apostles today in the sense of the New Testament gift of apostleship, prophecy. These are the apostles. Paul makes sure to point out that he is an apostle by the will of God. Certainly people would recognize, okay, Paul, we know who he is. He is popular. Not in a good way. He was infamous in those days. He wasn't one of the original band of disciples that followed Christ. Well, there's another indicator for us. There's a difference between a disciple and apostle. When we're talking about the disciples, we're talking about learners, followers, those who are patterning their lives after someone that's what you and i are disciples of christ that's what the commission that we've been given is is to make disciples apostles are disciples who were specially chosen by god to propagate his message and ultimately to quantify that message in the written word so their main goal really was the written word to receive god's word through their life with christ and what he gave them a special revelation then write it down so it was, there was a deposit of truth that we now have the scriptures. And then also to ordain in those early days people, men, faithful men, to carry out the propagation of the church, which had the task of preaching this, the Bible, the word. See, apostles had appointed particular 
uh, role to play in the development of, of the church that now engrafted the Gentiles. Why does Paul then call himself an apostle by the will of God? Turn to the book of Acts chapter 7. You'll see why this is so. Since he's not one of the original band of 12 that were with Jesus on a daily basis, he may have crossed paths with Jesus at some point. We're not told that. But he had a definite connection with, definite connection with the early church. Acts chapter 7. See what position he occupies as the church is just beginning in Jerusalem. The church meaning in the sense of after Christ's ascension. Acts 7, starting at verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And this is the crowd of Jews who were around Stephen who had been confronting them with their rejection of Christ. So 754 of Acts. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That's Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the, witness laid down their, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there was a great persecution that came down in the church. And we might surmise that the person behind it, or at least the one who motivated and invigorated it, was Saul, who became Paul. So people knew who he was, no doubt. So when he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God, there's no questions by the will of God. Look at Acts chapter 9, where we see this confirmed. Certainly, when you're receiving a, uh, an epistle, and it's from Paul, and you're part of the early church, you're going to think back at his past. There's no way you can lo overlook his past. How could he say he's an apostle? Well, he says, he's basically saying, I'm with you. I don't know how I am either. It's by the will of God. That's essentially what he's probably saying in his heart. Acts chapter 9, starting at the first verse. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We're not saying a passive objector here. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's not just you know, writing little columns in the newspaper saying how bad the Christians are. He's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest. He asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that, so that if they found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The way was a, another euphemism for Christians that avoided immediate persecution. Also, the synagogues were starting to become Christianized and he didn't like this as a Jew of Jews. And so he wanted an order, an edict to take out these people who were doing this. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Here is his direct meeting with the risen Christ, which you have to have if you're an apostle, in a direct commissioning. He was given these instructions. You will receive the particulars of your calling when you go to the city. So Paul 
by the will of God as an apostle. No doubt about this based on this experience that was so clear and witnessed by others. It wasn't just that Paul had this happen. Saul rose, or verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. You see, Jesus didn't appear to those men lest they say they're apostles too. We saw the risen Lord. But they heard the voice, and they knew someone spoke to, to Saul, clearly. Saul rose from the ground in verse 8. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Imagine having Ananias' job, by the way. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. What else would you say, by the way, if the Lord spoke to you? would be like, I'm here. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him in a kind of Moses-like interchange, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He then arose and was baptized. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, without doubt, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, why Paul? Have you ever wondered? I wonder consistently about why any of us. But why Paul? I think strategically, <clears throat> Paul could not be accused of propagating a, lith, a myth or a lie about Christ. He actually confirmed the historicity of Christ in his persecutions. And so people knew that he believed in Christ. But further, there was no personal advantage for Paul whatsoever to propagate anything about Christ. Unlike the other disciples, as it might have been accused of them. In other words, they followed him throughout life, and then he had been killed. And so people might think they're just promoting him so they look like they didn't follow after a lie. Well, that may be said of them, but you couldn't say that about Saul, who became Paul. This was of no personal advantage. It was nothing but heartache for him to transfer from what he had been doing for years to now supporting, promoting, propagating the very church he persecuted. It would take him years, by the way. He rose and was baptized, but it was many years before he actually wrote his first epistle before he actually had the effect that we know him to have had. There was a time of proving and testing without doubt, a time of restudying all that he had learned as a scholar. Now he had to learn in light of Christ. So it was time. It wasn't like he got up and became this great apostle immediately. It was over time as God worked. It became clear and clear, clear and he gave great credibility to the existing apostles. There's another reason. I think he brought a scholarly and a social credibility to Christianity. He was a Roman citizen. He was a scholar of great repute. The disciples, on the other hand, fishermen, tax collectors, very learned on their own, no doubt, apostles, full authority as apostles. 
But now when you have someone who is in the mainstream, so to speak, converting and showing that this is credible what these guys have been saying, they've already seen it manifested in their lives by the martyrdom of some of them by this point. And so now this great credibility is cast over Christianity and a legality to it now that Paul, a Roman citizen and a scholar, is now claiming Christ. Truly an amazing thing. So when you read over the first verse, it says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God understand all that goes in to the will of God to make him an apostle. And more personally, and much smaller, brothers and sisters, if he could use Paul, he can use you. I don't care what your background is. It does not bother God. He changes it. He transforms you. It makes no... You cannot consistently hide behind this. Well, I used to... I used, you used to. You're a new creation in Christ now. The scales have fallen from your eyes. You can see. Your life is new. It's changed. God can use you, and he consistently over and over and over does it. Constantly uses people that you think you'd never use, and uses them in great, great ways. Now, differentiated from the Apostle Paul, not to disrespect Timothy in any way, but rather just simply to show the, apost the apostolic authority of Paul, we have mentioned Timothy also with Paul, our brother. And that is no small thing to be a brother in the, in the faith, is it? Not at all. Not any disrespect meant. In fact, Timothy, what a wonderful brother he was and is. Timothy's Greek name means fear or to honor God. Timothy was a rare a person in these days and that he was a third-generation believer. We know this because Paul wrote to him once in 2 Timothy, As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelled first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. We see clearly from Paul's letters to Timothy that these two men were in close discipleship relationship. In fact, it's quite possible that Colossians was written while they were in Ephesus training Timothy to be the pastor there. Some think it was during the prison time. Some say it's during the time of Ephesus. We can't be positive, but we at least know this. The relationship between Paul and Timothy was a tight-knit discipleship relationship where it was as though Timothy was his son in the faith. I love the words of Paul to Timothy later as he encourages Timothy to keep on as an elder in the church. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So Timothy is an ordained elder in the church. The book of Acts records the ministry of Timothy and Paul as they traveled throughout all of Asia Minor and beyond. Galatia, Mysia, Troas, Philippi, Berea, Corinth, all these places, Paul and Timothy together. Timothy learning from Paul. And Christian tradition has it that Timothy ended his life as the pastor and elder at the Ephesian church shortly after this letter was penned. So I think of Timothy compared to Paul. I'm impressed with the fact that as a young man, he was an elder in the church. This isn't always the case. However, I submit to you, brothers and sisters, I submit to you that if the generations are faithful, it is not an unusual thing for young men to take leadership positions. That should be the norm. I'm afraid we're surprised by that anymore. Wow, he's young. Instead of saying, praise God for his faithfulness and grace in the generations. And I think of our own elders, especially when I first started, how young our elders were, myself included. But then I thought to myself, as I analyzed each man, they are, not, they are young chronologically, but they are not in the faith. To a man, generations of Christianity has shown itself in their family. 
that has an effect I hope we all look forward to. In fact, I pray for my boys on a regular basis. I pray for them that God would make them leaders in God's church. I don't mean necessarily ordained leaders, but people who are active at a young age when they have vibrancy and vitality that you start losing as you get older and I'm already feeling. Okay, when you're young, and I'm talking about those young men who are, who are becoming men and those young women who are becoming women, and that they would be immediately active in contributing and participating and ministering in the church rather than sitting and being entertained the whole time and then passive when they get through this weird stage that we've invented called adolescence and that we get to the stage where now, okay, we want you to be active and they're looking at you like, well, I haven't been all this time. Now I have to be? What do I do? And we have a whole gap of a generation. We lose a lot of kids there because we don't give them active role in ministry. We're so busy trying to entertain them that we're not training them. And so when they get worked over with all the entertainment and they're sick of that, they don't know what to do. And when you go from that stage and you just start having babies and you have children and the excuses that come out, well, well I'm, I'm not active because my baby's on a sleep schedule or my baby's on a food schedule and, or I, I'm working a lot right now or we're in that child-rearing stage or we're in the, all the excuses are laid out and years go by, no activity. It doesn't just happen all of a sudden. And, and this, this is something that burdens me as I look at the church. Not necessarily our particular church. We have a young church. But it's certainly a burden to the church at large that so many young people float, float through years, decades before they get serious about the calling God has placed in their life to serve. Timothy was a young man, yet he was an elder. I would hope we would see this as more the norm of generational blessing rather than something that is so unusual and so unique. I love the words of Paul to Timothy. Timothy was probably a little bit younger than myself, maybe the same age, when Paul said, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. It doesn't say don't, don't let them despise you because you're young. Go do what you're doing. Saying offset the fact that you're young with this example that shows maturity in Christ. Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands. So Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, and Timothy, a young elder in the faith, are together when this letter is written and sent to the church at Colossae. What do we know about Colossae? What kind of church is it? We know for sure that it was a young church. Epaphras is the man given credit to have brought the gospel to this place. Paphras was a disciple of Paul's. Paul never actually got to Colossae, at least not before this book was written. But Epaphras was used of God to plant this fledgling church. It's a very young church. Where is Colossae? It's really where modern-day Turkey is now, not far from Greece. And there's really a tri-city region there, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. And Colossae was really the most insignificant of all of them upstaged by the other two cities time and time again as it related to professionalism, trade, the arts, all of it. Wasn't very significant in the world's eyes. But a church had started there, and Paul wrote to encourage them. What was that church confronted with? I'd submit to you very similarly to us today with all sorts of syncretistic belief. In other words, there were just people from everywhere with different views on the world. There was angel worship. There were Jews there. We know at least 11,000 Jews registered in that area in the Roman Empire at that time. So there's a Jewish presence in that tri-city area. There was also uh, all sorts of Greek philosophy, asceticism. Uh, you name the philosophy, it was there. And philosophers sat around and talked and got paid and talked and got paid. And that's what they did. Uh, there was the Roman pantheon still in existence, the Greek pantheon, and all the amalgamations thereof and the syncretism that ran through it. The big challenge would be 
why would you say that Christ is preeminent over all this when it's all there and all these people have it? That's the constant challenge to this church is to not give in to syncretism, not give in to the idea that everything is on equal plane, that this could be true while this is true also. This is a little bit of truth. This is. That's the challenge. And so how does Paul address it? Well, he doesn't go to a seminary to figure it out or read a few books. Or do, the supremacy of Christ needs to be applied is what the apostle says and does. That's the point. He is supreme. He's preeminent over all this stuff. All this stuff has to be turned away from and unto God. That's the message he gives here in Colossians. It's the same message the church should be about today. I, th- I would tell you that we are in a constant battle for the supremacy of Christ. And I know this is just personally true, let alone on a corporate level. Every day, brothers and sisters, I have to wonder how supreme is Christ in my decisions, in my actions, in my passions, in my relationships. How supreme is he for you? And one of the indicators is, is how I am making time for Christ in the various ways we can. It's not all there is to it, but just be honest with yourself. And as you get together in home fellowship groups this week, let this be one of your main questions. How is the supremacy of Christ manifested in your home? Uh, if you ask your ch- children, especially the youngest children that just say really what it is, you know, as they get older, they're able to say what you want them to say. But younger, what would you say is most important to mom and dad? I mean, how many of our kids would say Jesus? Jesus is most important. All the activities, but Jesus is most important. I'm not telling you if I've got it all figured out. I'm telling you this is the battle we're in for the supremacy of Christ over everything. We want the supremacy of Christ to be real in the culture, don't we? I mean, I really truly believe that's what we want. But we cannot expect the supremacy of Christ to be real in the culture until it's real in the individual Christian's life, in the individual church's life, until people can see that the church is governed by Lord Jesus. Why would the culture want what we have? It's no better than a social club at that point. In fact, when you really analyze what's been called Christianity over the last 50 years in particular, it's kind of staggering what's happened. You know, liberalism creeped in and took out the moorings of the authority of Scripture. And really now what you have in a liberal church is not a church at all. It's not Christian. It's just a a gathering of people that are synchristically, they believe in all sorts of things. They'll talk about Jesus, but in the end, really, Jesus, Mohammed, or whatever it is for you, and it's basically taken itself out of the realm of Christianity into something else. I think that's almost become clear over the last few years. What's not so clear is what's happened in the evangelical church, the church that we're part of, that we're, we're ranking, you know, we're members of. What's happened here in the last 50 years is something different. Instead of the message of forgiveness of sins in Christ as the starting point and then everything else being seen in light of the supremacy of Christ over us as he's purchased us, instead, we see all the needs in the world, and they're legitimate needs, and we say, we've got to present to the world something that they'll like. And Jesus, they'll like Jesus if we just show them who he is. And then they'll say, Jesus can meet your need in this area. He can meet your need in that area. And, and they get away from really the way God's just basically laid out the word, the study. And it's, it's not outright denying Christianity in any way. It's just saying we've got to be more relevant. So we've got to give people their needs as Jesus can give them. And Jesus becomes more of this friend figure that you can get stuff from. And he'll meet you where you are. You just come in as you are, and, and he will come up alongside you, and he'll help you with your marriage. He'll help you in your family. He'll help you with your finances. He'll, will he help you with all this? Certainly. How he'll help you is help you to see his supremacy over all of it and how we should be making our decisions based on that. Now, when I was just learning to preach in, at, at college, they gave us this packet that I didn't read at the time of all these things about what modern people were saying about preaching. And this is in 1991 when I got the packet. And at that time, the megachurch movement had really taken hold, and it was really in the throngs of no one would dare say they weren't evangelical because they were and, and personally. But as far as the message, you wouldn't really hear a message about sin and a savior. It was more about 
uh, how Christ can help your life and feel better about your life now. You've you got to acknowledge Christ, but this is so he can help you feel better about things. And that was really prevalent, and there was kind of a backlash going on, and people were all kind of mad at that time, especially in seminaries that still taught expositional preaching. And so I put that thing aside, and about a few years ago, I started reading through it about preaching. And there was an article that I want to share a part of it from uh, that was written by A.W. Tozer in the late 60s as he was noticing this shift. I think it's tremendously relevant. So here, A.W. Tozer and what he says about the old cross and the new cross, keeping in mind that the Colossian church battled syncretism the same way we do. Tozer said, from this new cross has sprung a new philosophy of the Christian life. And from that new philosophy has come a new evangelical technique, a new type of meeting and a new type of preaching. This new evangelism employs the same language as of the old, but its content is not the same and the emphasis not as before. The new cross encourages a new and entirely different evangelistic approach. The evangelist does not demand abnegation of the old life before a new life can be received. He preaches not contrasts, but similarities. He seeks to key into the public view the same thing the world does, only a higher, on a higher level. Whatever the sin-mad world happens to be clamoring after at the moment is cleverly shown to be the very thing the gospel offers. Only the religious product is better. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him to a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue in order to make it acceptable to the public. This is, this is 19, late 1960s. It's remarkable. He goes on to say, The philosophy backed of this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It is false because it is blind. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took the cross and started down the road has already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was not going out to have his life redirected. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with the victim. It struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. The race of Adam is under the death sentence. There is no commutation and no escape. God cannot approve any fruits of sin, however innocent they may appear, or beautiful to the eyes of men. God salvages the individual by liquidating him, then raising him again to a newness of life. He ends this way. That evangelism which draws friendly parallels between the ways of God and the ways of men is false to the Bible and cruel to the souls of its hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world. It intersects it. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life to a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relation agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern entertainment. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. Paul's solution to the problems at Colossae are the same, is the same solution that we need today. It's the supremacy of Christ over all things. It's not to say that our lives don't matter in relationships and how-tos. and Those things have a place in our life, but they have to be seen under the lordship of Christ first. We'll never understand that unless we see the great chasm between us and God 
our righteousness and his righteousness, and that only Christ, Christ alone, can save us from this. Colossians is replete with this. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Colossians 1.18, and he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not take second stage to anything or be equal with anything. He's preeminent over it all. And everything must be analyzed in light of his preeminence. So if he says he's the way, the truth, and the life, Mohammed's not. Buddha's not. Materialism's not. Socialism is not. Our, whatever you want to fill in the blank, Christ is preeminent, and he is the answer. That's the simplicity of Colossians. In all its complexity, that simple message reigns true, and it's the same thing we need today in the church and in our lives. We're much more like Colossae than you probably think. He addresses this great book to the saints and faithful brothers. Wow, I wonder who they are. The saints and the faithful brothers. For them, that leaves me out. Verse 2 literally says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, who are these saints and faithful brothers? This is a description of those who call themselves Christians and are members of the church at Colossae. Some translations will say to the holy and faithful brethren. They'll combine these two Uh, these two uh, descriptive words, but really they're separate participles and should be taken separately to describe the same entity. The holy ones, hagioi, means the saints, those who are now clean. They are set apart. That's what holy means. Why are they set apart? By something of their, their own doing? No, because they've been bought by the bride of Christ, clean by him. So we're holy because he is holy. It's not because you deserve any label of sainthood. It's because We've been made holy by Jesus. So that's who the saints are, those who are bought with a price, those who are sinners who confessed faith in Christ and transferred to the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The holy ones, the church, and the faithful brothers is just another modifying word to this. To describe those who have been cleansed, their lives will now look different. They will resemble the one who has bought them, and they will appear to the world as an entity unto itself, not to be separate in the sense that it's, uh, it doesn't want anything to do with it, but rather to be the, the group that they want to be part of because they've been clean. They're sinners, but now they're clean to the saints and the faithful brothers. Really, the modern practice of sainthood in the Roman Catholic Church has served to obscure the biblical meaning in a terrible way. Uh, there's nowhere in the scripture where you get around and vote on who would be a saint and who wouldn't be. Paul talks about the churches as churches filled with saints. Uh, not as an individual who, like in the Hall of Fame, gets a certain right amount of votes, they become a saint. And when someone calls up and says a miracle was done and someone did it, and then after enough of this kind of attestation, then they become saints. That utterly obscures the priesthood of all believers, so clearly taught in Scripture. So when we think of saints, who are saints? You're a saint by the will of God through Christ. That's why you're a saint. It's hard for me to even imagine myself as a saint. But in this way... To the glory of Christ, it's true. If you trust Christ and are cleansed by his blood, you are a saint. Faithfulness to Christ should be then what typifies the person who is a Christian, a saint. Finally, the last, the blessing that is pronounced, grace and peace to the Colossian church. Grace, and, grace to you and peace from God our Father. It's not that he's saying, I give you something, or Paul somehow pronounces something in a way that bestows grace upon them by his own power. No, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. He's our Father. That's because of His grace. We now have peace, and He's our Father. In a general way, that's what it means. 
We have peace because of God's grace to us in Christ. We are at utter war with God. Our sin is rebellion against God, complete enmity between us and God. Then God, by the riches of his own mercy, according to the good pleasure of his own will, interjects his son so that we might be saved. That's grace. It's all of God. You didn't do anything to deserve it. I did nothing to attain this. But now the dividing wall of separation comes down because the righteousness of Christ intercedes for me, and now God accepts me, and I'm at peace with him. By grace, I can have peace. That's the only way. You can't have peace any other way. It's God's doing. And when we lack peace in our Christian life, and we lack rest, it's why? It's because we're not confessing our sins that have been bought by the blood of Christ. That's why we continue in unrest as believers. But we're talking about ultimate peace, knowing your eternal destiny is secure. Paul, in pronouncing this blessing upon the people, is praying for God to pour out his favor upon them and allow them to live in the contentment that is now theirs because they have peace and satisfaction with God's will. How might we experience such peace? Trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Acknowledge that the war rages between you and God and that you are laying down arms and Christ is your Savior. That's where you begin to have peace, no matter what your outside circumstances are. Persecution would come just a few years later to the Christians who lived in this part of the world. They had to know that their peace was their eternity with God. And it wasn't just that they're looking ahead to live in heaven. With that peace in mind, they can live totally different in the kingdom now. Knowing their eternity is secure, they can now live bravely in the world there and then. It wasn't they're sitting idly by so, you know, so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good type of thing. Rather, they were looking to the fact that you can kill my body, but I'm at peace, grace, peace to you. I close with this picture of peace that is offered as a prayer, as a blessing from Paul here. There was a man who sought the perfect picture of peace. He literally wanted someone to draw or paint a picture that would just exude peace. When you looked at it, you'd feel peaceful. Not finding that one particular picture satisfied, he announced a contest to produce this masterpiece. The challenge stirred all the great artists of the day, and it came down to just a few. A judge pulled the cover from one of these, and a hush fell over the crowd, and it was a mere smooth lake that reflected lacy green birches under the soft lush of the evening sky. Along the grassy shore, there was a flock of sheep, undisturbed and unbothered, feeding peacefully surely this had to be the winner but the man then unveiled the next one the second painting that picture had a tumultuous waterfall cascading down a rocky precipice the crowd could almost feel the cold penetrating spray coming off it stormy gray clouds were in the sky ready to explode with lightning and rain wind in the midst of the thundering and uh, noises that you could picture the bitter chill that it exuded, there was a spindly tree that clung to the rocks at the edge of the falls. One of its branches reached out in front of the torrential waters as if to foolishly seek to experience its full power. A little bird had built a nest in the elbow of that branch. Content and undisturbed in her stormy surroundings, she rested on her eggs. With her eyes closed and her wings ready to cover her little ones, she manifested peace which transcends all earthly turmoil. That's the peace that only a believer can experience. Just as we sang earlier by Tope Lady, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed 
B of sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. That's where peace comes from God's grace. So we begin this great epistle to the Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for these great opening words of this wonderful epistle. I pray, O Lord, that we would consider all the various ways it touches upon the lives we live now. And Lord, I pray for everybody here to stop from their striving and rest upon Christ. For old believers and new believers alike, to rest upon Christ. And for the person who does not yet know you, that you, according to the good pleasure of your will and your time, would impress upon them the great chasm that is between them and you because of their sin. And I pray that they would see that the only one who can save them is Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.